Hey, good morning and uh, welcome to those of us, uh, those of you who are listening to us on our podcast. We're very delighted to have you guys uh, join us uh, by podcast as well. We would invite you to come some Sunday morning though because, uh, man, you miss out on some great worship uh, during, the, uh, during the Sunday morning. Uh, we are starting a new series this morning called uh, New Marriage, Same Spouse. And if you've wondered if I planned that to coincide with uh, uh, Valentine's Day, absolutely, yes. It seems like a natural time to do a series on marriage while love and romance are uh, all fresh in your mind. Now, I, I, I want to tell you guys something. I've been really surprised. This past week and then even this morning, I've had a lot of conversations with people who have said that they're, um, that they're anxious that they're nervous about a series like this, that they kind of dread a series like this because uh, maybe in their previous church experiences, they have left feeling enormous guilt and feeling like a loser after the series is over. That is not what's going to happen in this series. I don't know what your experience has been, but man, that is not what I'm trying to accomplish in this. So just sort of, you know, uh, put your dukes down and kind of just rest and relax and just listen and, and let's see if God can enlighten us a little bit about marriage. I realize that not everyone here is married and uh, you may be wondering why in the world would a series like this be uh, important to you. Some of you are single and you've been, never been married. Uh, it's not that you have anything against marriage. You'd like to be married. It's just Mr. and Mrs. Wright uh, hasn't come along. I get that. You know what? I was 32 years old before I got married. I was in 14, I was a groomsman in 14 weddings. Uh, before I got married. And I got to thinking that I was going to be like the guy that was always a groomsman but never the groom. And so I get it. If that's where you're at, I understand. Some of you are single and you never want to get married. And maybe you're living with someone right now. Maybe you're considering living with someone because, I don't know, maybe something you saw in your parents' marriage. Um, uh, or maybe it's just, you know, you look at the statistics and you, and you just have a fear of uh, things not working out. And let me tell you, if that's where you're at, you're not alone. Uh, listen to this. The marriage rate in America is lower right now than it's ever been. Okay, get this. 1920. The marriage rate in 1920 was 92.3%. The marriage rate... Last date that we have statistics available in 2010. The marriage rate in 2010, 32%. That's a pretty significant drop. You see, more and more people uh, are deciding that they want to live together instead of get married. Some of you are widowed. Uh, Some of you are divorced. And because of past experiences, perhaps in previous marriage, you're like, I never want to get married again. I still think that this series is important for, for, for you if you fall into one of those categories. Um, it is very possible that inordinate fears that you have about marriage or maybe inordinate longing that you have to be married or maybe an inordinate amount of romanticism about marriage is clouding your understanding of marriage. And you need to begin to see marriage through the lens of Scripture rather than through the lens of your fears or your uh, romanticism or your longing. Some of you who've been divorced and you're like, man, never again. Don't want to do it because of a painful marriage. Uh, You may have a more distorted view of marriage than people who are here that are single and never been married. And it may be that you're looking at the future more through the lens of some bad memories than you are through the lens of Scripture. So even if you're not married, I think a series like this can be very critical for you. And then for those of you uh, who are married, You know how incredibly difficult it is to make a marriage work. 
And like you know that feeling of sometimes just maybe you wake up in the morning and you look at your spouse and you wonder, what was I thinking when I said I do to him or I do to her? What was I thinking? And by the way, I hope you don't feel, I don't mean in any way, shape, or form for that to sound cynical about marriage. That is not my intent. Uh, a couple years ago, I said kind of that same thing uh, at another church in a series about marriage. And a young lady sent me an email just tearing into me. She just tore into me about saying that, about how cynical I am about marriage. And she said that, that she, she said in this email, she said, I have never felt that way about my husband. And I've been married for a whole six months. And... <laughs> And I kid you not, she went on in her email and she said, and I asked my husband if he ever felt that about me. And he said, no. I, go, I bet. I'll bet he said no. Just judging by this email, I get that sense. Um, I, I want you to understand, I'm not trying to be negative. I'm not trying to be cynical about marriage. I'm very pro-marriage. My wife is here. I want her to hear. I'm very pro-marriage, honey. I, I, I really am. It's just... I think sometimes what happens in churches, I think sometimes churches idealize marriage. And I think they understate how hard it is to make a marriage work. And I think what happens then is that there are some people who just, some people in the congregation who sit out there wondering, are we the only couple that are struggling? And, of course, feeling alone makes the problems that you feel even bigger. And so what I want to do in this series, I want to be very realistic about marriage. And yet I want to look at some very practical insight that Scripture gives us about marriage. Okay, so, so that's where I want to go. I, I hope that you will just sit back and I hope you just put your dukes down and don't be afraid. Because I think we're just going to learn from Scripture. And I think we will be encouraged when we leave. If you have a Bible, turn uh, with me in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 5. And we're going to start reading at verse 21. And what I want to do this morning is I want to read the whole passage that we're going to be in for the next six weeks. Now, I, I want to tell you that this, this series is going to be, um, well, obviously it's going to be different than maybe what you've experienced in the past. But one of the ways it's going to be different is that we want this to be interactive. And what we would like for you to do is we'd like for you to send your questions to us about marriage. And you can do it uh, by Twitter or by Facebook. And if you'll just send, it to ha- send your questions to hashtag new marriage. Okay, just send it to hashtag new marriage. And if you'll send us those questions, what we'll do is we'll answer some of those questions by social media through the week. But, but here's what we're going to do. It's going to be different. On the last week of this series, okay, we're going to be in this passage for six weeks. On the sixth week, on the last week, we're going to take your questions. We won't name names, okay, I promise. But, but we will take your questions. And that last Sunday will just be a question and answer time using your questions and answering those things. Okay, so it's going to be different. We want to make it very practical and very realistic. Does that sound good? Are you okay with that? Say amen if that sounds okay to you. Okay, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. You're going to notice as we read this, so you're going to notice that this is an explosive, very controversial passage, and there are a ton of landmines for me to blow myself up on in this passage. And so, like, if you don't feel like this passage is going to uh, apply to your life right now, it might be fun just to come and watch me blow myself up a few times, okay? <laughs> Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, and uh, we'll, we'll start reading there. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. Uh, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your... Let's skip that. No, I'm kidding you. We'll read that. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, 
his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle, or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Verse 29, after all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Why did I choose this passage? Um... The reason I chose this passage is because it is the longest, uh, most foundational passage in all of Scripture about God's design for marriage. And one of the common assertions that you often hear from people these days in our culture is that marriage is just a man-made institution with no inherent definition. It is what society says it is, and any definition of marriage should evolve to reflect a changing society. What I want you to see, though, is that according to Scripture, marriage is a divine institution. It is not anthropological in its origin. It is theological uh, in its origin. God invented marriage. And so when you enter into marriage, uh, you're entering in under his authority. Whether you will or not, you're still entering in under his authority. And since he invented marriage, uh, it seems like it would make common sense to understand how he invented it and how he invented it to work. Because if you do it in a way that he didn't invent it to work, it's not going to work very well, right? Now, before we look any, at, at this passage in any detail, I, I want to make sure that you understand something contextually that is very important here, and it is the assumption uh, behind this passage. The assumption in this passage is that you have responded to the gospel and Consequently, you have the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit living within you. Okay, that's the assumption of the passage. In other words, what, what we're doing in this passage is we're looking at what does a gospel marriage look like? Uh, we're not asking what does a celebrity marriage in Hollywood look like. Uh, we're not asking what is, a, what is a marriage that is outside of the gospel where two people haven't responded to the gospel. We're not asking what does that marriage look like. We're asking, what does a gospel marriage look like when two people uh, have the power of the Holy Spirit uh, living within them? Just a few verses uh, before this, Paul says, uh, he says, he says, be filled with the Spirit, okay? He says, be filled with the Spirit. That's up in verse 18. It's the last line of verse 18. He says, instead, be filled with the Spirit. Now, what he's talking about there is, when he talks about the Holy Spirit, he's talking about uh, the power Behind the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is the third member of the Trinity. You have God the Father, you have God the Son, and you have God the Holy Spirit. And they are all one, and yet in some way that none of us really completely understand, they are distinct at the same time. The moment that a person responds to the gospel, the person of the Holy Spirit indwells you. And as a result, he gives you potential. And and by the way, he gives you the potential. That's what... Paul means when he says, be filled with the Spirit. Okay, so, so the moment you come to Christ, you're indwelled by the Spirit. The moment you respond to the gospel, you're indwelled by the Spirit. 
you then have the potential to be filled with the Spirit depending upon how much you choose to live by the power of the Spirit. Okay, being filled with the Spirit. I, don't, what you, I know some of you probably have some thoughts of being filled with the Spirit means speaking in tongues or uh, you know, whatever all of that is. That's not what being filled with the Spirit means. Being filled with the Spirit means um, choosing to live by the power of the Spirit on a moment-by-moment basis. Okay? And so the moment that you respond to the gospel, the Holy Spirit gives you the potential to, to live a qualitatively different life than you could have lived the second before that you responded to the gospel. Okay? Do you understand that? Okay. Now, I, I, I said this in the last series, but I, I, want you to, I really want you to get this. I'm going to drive it home again. Becoming a Christian is not simply a matter of moral improvement. In other words, it's not a a quantitative change. When you become a Christian, it's not that you become quantitatively better. It's that you, 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 you qualitatively change. Now let me give you a quick illustration uh, of, of what I'm talking about. Uh, what is an iPhone uh, with no power? What's an iPhone with no power? Well, I, I'm not exactly sure what an iPhone is made of, but I know it's got plastic. There's probably some glass, maybe some, some metal, right? But without power, it can't, it can't do much. It can't make phone calls. It can't text. It can't download apps. You can't tweet with it. Uh, an iPhone without a battery isn't a phone. It's just plastic, glass, metal, uh, whatever. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, there's nothing wrong with being plastic and, you know, nothing wrong with metal, nothing wrong with glass. It's just... It's just not a phone. You can't do phone things with that. However, if if you give an iPhone power, it doesn't just change quantitatively. Like, it doesn't become more plastic, more metal, more glass. It changes qualitatively, okay? It, It becomes, it goes from plastic and glass and metal to a phone, and it becomes then a powerful tool that does things that mere plastic, glass, and metal can't, to, can't do. Okay, this is what I mean when I say that when the Holy Spirit um, does come into the life of a person who responds to the gospel, you don't just become quantitatively better. You don't just become more moral. You become qualitatively different. You suddenly have the potential for a completely different kind of life that you could have lived the second before you responded uh, to Christ. And I mentioned that. I think it's very important because what makes these verses so controversial and such a minefield is when you read these verses from the perspective of a life that either has no access to the power of the Holy Spirit or through the mind of a person who chooses to unplug from the power of the Holy Spirit. If you read this passage from that perspective, where like there's no Holy Spirit, this passage sounds loony. It, it sounds crazy. It sounds painfully primitive. Submit? Seriously? Love sacrificially? That's crazy. But in reality, it's not crazy or loony. It's just, it's, it's otherworldly. Right? It's a qualitatively different kind of life than life without the Holy Spirit. Again, what we're looking at is what a a gospel marriage looks like. And so what I want you to understand is that what Paul is saying is that the power for marriage, just like the power for the rest of life, is the Holy Spirit. 
That's the power for marriage, the Holy Spirit. If you want a successful, lasting, meaningful marriage, the Holy Spirit has to be present and working in the marriage and also working in the individual lives within the marriage. And the reason is this. Look, if you're newly married, you might not understand this, but if you've been married for any length of time, you get this, that your passion and your romance and your niceness and your goodness won't be able to build a meaningful marriage. Now, that's not to say that people who have not responded to the gospel can't have a lasting marriage. They can. Mutual self-interest can sometimes keep people together, but they never reach the level of marriage that a Holy Spirit-empowered marriage can reach. Now, why do I say that? Look at verse 21, because this is is the verse that we're going to focus on this morning. Paul says, and he says it before he says everything else. In fact, some of your Bibles, like my Bible that I am reading from here, uh, verse 21 is sort of detached from verses 22 to 33. That shouldn't be the case. Uh, Those paragraph divisions and those divisions in your Bible, uh, those aren't inspired. Really, the heading for the whole passage, verses uh, 22 to 33, the the heading for that is verse 21. And I want you to notice that Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, I'll bet you, if I were to ask this morning for a show of hands, and I'm not going to, but if I did, if I asked for a show of hands, I'll bet you every hand in the room would go up in agreement that the word submit has some very bad connotations. Pretty much agree? It's got some very bad connotations. And just using the word submit in the context of marriage Uh, creates tension in this room. Can you feel the tension? Because I can, and i got to tell you, I'm kind of scared right now. Uh, Maybe we need to go back to be filled with the Spirit and talk about that and revisit that for just a moment because you should see some of the looks that I'm getting as I'm talking about this word, uh, submit. It feels very bad to use the word submit in the context of marriage. And I'll tell you something, what I'm going to explain next isn't going to make it feel any better. The word submit... uh, is actually a military word, and it's actually used in Greek to talk about soldiers submitting to an officer. And that doesn't make anything feel any better, does it? Because uh, no one wants a militaristic marriage. Who wants a, what wife wants a husband who would treat her uh, like a lower-ranking soldier? And what, what husband wants a wife who's always barking orders at him all the time? And even as you hear this and, and read this, you're like, Paul, come on, that's all. That's a horrible image to throw into a conversation about marriage. Why would he use that word? And I want you to rest assured that he's not using that word to advocate any kind of militaristic kind of marriage. The reason he uses the word is that he wants to convey the reason that he's going to challenge us to give up some control over your life in the context of your marriage. When a person joins the military, uh, they willingly give up a tremendous amount of control over their life, right? And they give up control over like what they eat. They give up control over when they sleep and, and, and uh, what they do with their time. And why do they do that? Why do they give up so much control? Well, the reason that they give up so much control is because if you're going to be part of something larger than yourself, if, if you're going to be in unity, if you're going to act as one body, if, if you're going to be one whole, You have to. You have to defer a whole lot of your wishes and some of your control 
and some of your desires for the good of the whole, right? And so when Paul uses this word submit through this passage, he's making the point that marriage, and not just marriage, by the way. In fact, all relationships work like this. Relationships, but specifically marriage, because that's what's in view in this series, work best when both parties are willing to defer. In other words, when they're willing to, to give up some of their rights, when they're willing to deny themselves for the good of the whole. That's why he uses this word. Now, as soon as we talk about deferring, giving up, giving over control, uh, denying yourself, as soon as we start to talk about that, we bump up against the foundational problem in any marriage. Guess what the foundational problem with any marriage is? And Paul's stating it right here in verse 21 when he says, submit. One another. That's the positive way of saying it. The negative way of saying it is that the basic foundational problem of any marriage it's self-centeredness. Self-centeredness is the main foundational problem in any marriage. And in the weeks ahead, as we study this passage, you're going to find that everything else that Paul says is really it's a corrective aimed at the human instinct to be self-centered and to be so consumed and absorbed and obsessed with getting our own needs met. Uh, Paul's going to, he's going to write about that. He's going to be, everything he says is a corrective toward this self-centered thing. In fact, this self-centered thing is so instinctive that the only way that we can really deal with it effectively is through an otherworldly power in the person of the Holy Spirit who can enable you to live above your instincts. He can Now, that's why I said just a moment ago that without the Holy Spirit, no marriage can become all that God intends for it to be. Because self-centeredness, which is the basic foundational problem of every marriage, self-centeredness will always bring a marriage down. It always does. Now, look, I I realize that, you know, as I talk about the fact that self-centeredness is the basic foundational problem of any marriage, uh, I realize that there are people in the world who would object to the idea that human beings are instinctively self-centered. They would think, some people would argue that human beings are inherently good. These people aren't married. (laughs) If people were inherently good, Paul would never have to tell people to submit to each other. Because we just do it naturally. Like... If people were inherently good, we wouldn't have any fear of submitting to somebody else. We wouldn't have any fear of being abused or trampled on. Reason, the very reason that this word submit creates such tension is because self-centeredness is instinctive to us. Just, Just think about it, okay? Just think about it practically. When you first get married to a person... You think, well, oh, you just think that person's wonderful. That's, that's why you get married to the person, because you're like, oh, they are just absolutely wonderful. But within a very short period of time, you begin to see, don't you, that they're selfish. And you begin to see more and more and more of that selfishness. And guess what? They're looking at you and thinking the very same thing. And then they tell you, they, they tell you that you're selfish. And you might be big enough, you might in that moment be big enough to acknowledge, yeah, I, I know, I, I can be kind of 
selfish. But you're thinking, even as you acknowledge it to them, to them even if you say, yeah, I, I, I know. I, you're thinking to yourself, but I'm not nearly as selfish as you. <laughs> and uh, besides, you just don't understand me. I mean, that's really the issue. Is you, don't, you don't understand me. And guess what they're thinking? They're thinking the very same thing about you. You're more selfish than they are. And you just really don't understand them. And from that point, there's really only three ways to go from, from there. One is that you can both fixate on the other person's selfishness. And as time goes by, you will find that what starts out maybe as mild annoyance toward their selfishness, uh, it slowly becomes, it becomes a slow simmer. And then the slow simmer over time turns to boiling anger. And then the boiling anger turns to rage. And then the rage turns to hatred. And ultimately, the only place that that can go is divorce. And that's where it often ends. There's a second way, though, that, that it can go. It can go like this. I've seen this happen a lot. In fact, I'll, I, I may have seen this happen more than I have seen... Um, The third option that we'll talk about in a moment. Sometimes what happens is two people just agree, not verbally because that would mean more communication than they really have. It's just they sort of agree by default to avoid conflict in their relationship and just not talk to each other about their selfishness. And they just sort of layer over this um, over the years. And um, they just sort of decide, you know, they don't say it, but they just sort of decide, I won't bug you. You don't bring that up to me, I won't bring it up to you, and we'll just kind of layer over it over the years. And there are people who live like that, and they stay married for 50 years. Now, it's not an intimate marriage. Um, They sort of become roommates out of, you know, sort of a mutual kind of self-interest. I mean, it's easier to stay married sometimes than it is to get divorced. And so they just stay roommates. And and they, you know, everybody has a celebration. Um, I have known I'm trying to decide Um, you're thinking I'm going to reveal something about me I'm not that's not what I'm getting ready to do you're going to tell you something else I have known uh, couples that celebrated their 50th anniversary and everybody takes the pictures and people talk about them and they go boy aren't they so sweet they've been married for 50 years and I know what most people don't know because I've I've talked to them and been maybe in counseling with them, and I know that there is enormous rage, just enormous hatred between these two people, but they can put on a face, and they look really sweet, um, but they don't feel that toward each other. And like, you know, that kiss that they had, you know, they take the picture of them kissing after 50, it was forced. It was forced. They don't normally do that. I've seen that happen. And that's sad. There's a third way, though, that it can go. The third way is that you you look at a verse like verse 21, and you say, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And what you could decide is that um, verse 21 is there because God has been dealing with marriages for thousands of years, and he knows a little something about marriage. And you can decide to see your own selfishness as more serious than your spouse's selfishness. 
And you can decide to deal with your own self-centeredness as it's revealed to you. Regardless of what your spouse does. And you can make a conscious decision to stop making excuses. And to see your self-centeredness, not your past, not your wounds, not your needs, not your spouse. But you can see your self-centeredness as the fundamental problem in your marriage. And if, if both spouses did that in a marriage, can you, can you see how endless the possibilities for that marriage would be? For how endless the possibilities your marriage uh, are for your marriage if both spouses said, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to consider my self-centeredness in my marriage more important than my spouse's. Regardless of what he or she does, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look at my own and I'm going to deal with my own self-centeredness. Now, I realize that there's actually a fourth way that this could go. And the fourth way is that only one of the spouses does this. But I would tell you that there is still great possibility for your marriage if only one spouse does it. You might even be surprised by your spouse's reaction over time if you really just took your own self-centeredness and said, I'm going to deal with mine, not going to deal with yours. I'm going to take mine and pretend like mine. I'm going to decide that mine is the most serious in this relationship. It would be remarkable. About a year ago, I was in a conversation with a guy in another part of the country, and um, he was talking to me about his opinions about marriage. And um, he told me this. He said, he said, the basic problem in marriage is that people don't, just don't submit to their roles. Husbands ought to lead wives, and wives ought to submit. And I want to tell you that, that that's an opinion I've heard a lot in conservative circles, mostly from men, actually. Uh, and I would tell you that, indeed, I, I really do believe that the roles that people play and getting those roles confused can be a major problem. And we'll talk about that in the weeks ahead. But if you don't understand, if a couple doesn't understand that self-centeredness is the foundational problem in the marriage, which is why the Apostle Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ to begin with. If you don't understand that self-centeredness is the foundational problem, you could pushing the roles that people play first could lead someone in the marriage to take advantage of the other person. Would you notice that Paul doesn't talk about roles in verses 22 through 33. He doesn't talk about roles until he nails down the issue of self-centeredness and the need for the Holy Spirit in marriage. Do you understand that? Do you know why? Because if he talked about roles before he talked about the Holy Spirit and self-centeredness, then you would have abuse. You would have abuse of those roles. And you, frankly, couldn't fulfill any of those roles that he talks about in this passage. But once he has the Holy Spirit in there, and once he said, look, the problem is both of you guys are self-centered, then, he, then you can begin to understand, i got to be careful with whatever my role is in marriage. i got to be careful that I don't play this role in a self-centered way. And i got to make sure that I'm dependent upon the Holy, Holy Spirit because my instincts are really bad. So that's why Paul deals with that first. You got to make sure you get the you got to get that before you get the issue of the roles. Now, so this, that's the conservative. Uh, some of the that's kind of the conservative view about the problem in marriage is people just need to play roles. On the other hand, there's there's a more set there's a secular view about marriage that says that the main problem in marriage is that the other person has to recognize your potential and don't you know don't let them trample over you. Um, because you need to realize your potential. And if, if the other person won't help you fulfill your potential, uh, then you have to get out of the marriage. 
And I would say this, that if the major problem in marriage is self-centeredness, it may be a problem that the other person isn't helping you realize and achieve your potential. That may be a problem. And there may be a situation where you need to get out of the marriage. And I want you to understand that God does allow divorce uh, in some circumstances. But I would ask you this. Isn't it possible that if the real problem in marriage is self-centeredness, isn't it possible that all the emphasis on self-development, couldn't that just play into the hands of self-centeredness? Couldn't it? See, the gospel approach to marriage is different than either the conservative approach or the secular approach. The gospel approach to marriage is a spirit-generated selflessness. In fact, it's the same selflessness that Jesus demonstrated when he endured the cross. Not, Not because he needed it for himself, but because you and I needed him to endure the cross. And so the gospel, a gospel marriage looks like spirit-generated selflessness. By the way, spirit-generated selflessness is not, it's not about thinking less of yourself. And it's not about thinking more of yourself. It's about thinking of yourself less. Taking your mind off of yourself and realizing that in Christ, all of your needs are going to be met in Christ. And what that does is it frees you up to be concerned about meeting your spouse's needs because Christ has met yours. Here's the genius of of the gospel of a gospel marriage. Here's the genius of the gospel. You can stop, if if you know Christ, if, if, if you've responded to the gospel, here's something you can stop doing. And this is genius. You can stop putting so much pressure on the other person to be your God and to be your Savior and to meet all of your needs and help you realize all of your potential. You can stop putting so much pressure on them. And you can let Christ do that, and you can focus on serving them. That's the genius of the gospel. Now, let me tell you something. When I listen to most of the pop, I love pop music. I love pop music. I, I, I mean... But when I listen to it, I feel so sorry for the person that the singer is singing about because he's talking about or she's talking about how this person meets all of her needs and, and, and this, this guy or this, this woman, is she's all that he's ever wanted and all that he's ever lived for and, and he can't imagine anything more and that she's the perfect person for him. And I just feel so sorry for those people that they're singing about because that's a lot of pressure. You know, look, I'm going to tell you, if, you, if you've been married for any period of time, you know, you know something that you should know? You married the wrong person. Because the only person that can meet all of your needs is Jesus. Your spouse can't. And if you try to make your spouse into a person who can meet every one of your needs and and you put them up on a platform and you demand that they meet all of your needs and if they don't, well, that's pressure, man. Nobody can live under that. I I want to close with this. I just want to give you a little homework this week. And 
Okay, your homework is not to go home and feel guilty and lick your wounds and dread coming back next week. That is not your homework. Are we on the same page there? Okay. Here's your homework for this week. I want to give you three essential ways as as I close here. I just want to give you three essential ways that a spirit-generated selflessness in you would manifest itself in your marriage. And without these three, I tell you, I mean, there's other things, but, but these, without these three, no marriage is ever going to work. And I just want you to go home and think about these. Let us pray about it. Let the Spirit of God work in your life on this, okay? Don't feel guilty. Go home and just, man, the Spirit wants to turn me into something new. Great, let Him do that. Okay, here, here we go. Here are the three things. The first is, Spirit-generated selflessness in the context of marriage looks like this. Number one, the ability to receive criticism without being crushed. Can you do that? See, because what happens is, you know, the other person, I've never had my wife criticize me, but I've heard this in theory, that the way this works is that they, they criticize you, and then you kind of, you know, you walk away, and you're like, oh, man, I feel guilty. I'm a loser. God, what a horrible. That's self-centeredness. That's self-pity. That's what that is. Spirit-generated selflessness would say, look, I, um, my worth is not based on those things. I'm, I'm still worthy. God has accepted me uh, through the cross of Jesus Christ, and he, this is just an area for me to work on. It's a great area for me to grow in. It doesn't mean I'm more or less valuable. So you don't walk away crushed. That, second, you have the ability to give criticism without crushing. Can you do that? <laughs> Over the years, I have I've had people many, many times that have said, I want to be brutally honest with you. And I always dread it when somebody says that, that I want to be brutally honest with you because what that means is that they're going to enjoy the brutality as much as they're going to enjoy the honesty. And so I don't really, you know, I'm not looking forward to the brutality of this. But can you give criticism to your spouse without crushing him or without crushing her? I'm not talking about how they receive it. I'm talking about how you give it. Can you do that? Got to have that for a marriage to work. Third, right here, third. Spirit-generated selflessness manifests itself in the ability to forgive without residual anger. Can you forgive without residual anger, without it going on and on and on and on. How are you at those three things? Not how is your spouse at those three things? I don't want you thinking right now, yeah, boy, my spouse really needs to hear that. I want you to think about you. Your self-centeredness is the problem, not his, not hers. How are you? And I want you to take a good look this week and just want you to ask the Spirit to enlighten you. And if the Spirit enlightens you on something, own it. And move on. Bow your heads with me and let's pray. Uh, We are grateful, Lord, for a passage of Scripture that speaks to us about marriage with uh, absoluteness and specificity. We affirm today that marriage is not what society makes it. Marriage is what you designed it to be. And because of that, we want to we want to know what you designed it to be. And uh, we want gospel marriages. And Lord, 
uh, even as I speak about it, I know that it's such a sensitive issue. And people come in and, and they have so much uh, fear and anxiety and maybe their defenses are up. Um, Lord, I pray that through the course of this series that people would just put their defenses down. And that they would understand that you have, everything you say, it's, it's under the banner of be filled with the Spirit and recognize your own issues. And that we would see this as grace and mercy, not in any way as something that's to be guilt-inducing and anxiety-creating. Lord, I think every person here recognizes intuitively that we need to change and we need to grow. We all do. And Lord, we, we take that as a sign of your mercy that you would, you would help us in that process. Lord, speak to us throughout the series and speak to us throughout this week. Let us be filled with the power of the Spirit and the life of the Spirit. We want to be like Christ. It's in his name that we worship and pray.